The epistle for this 14th Sunday after Pentecost is taken from St. Paul's letter to the Galatians. Brethren, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, so that you do not do what you would. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are immorality, uncleanness, licentiousness, idolatry, witchcrafts, enmities, contentions, jealousies, anger, quarrels, factions, parties, envies, murders, drunkenness, carousings, and such like. And concerning these I warn you, as I have warned you, that they who do such things will not attain the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is charity, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, long-suffering, mildness, faith, modesty, continency, chastity. Against such things there is no law. And they who belong to Christ have crucified their flesh with its passions and desires. Please stand for the gospel. The gospel is taken from the sixth chapter of the gospel of St. Matthew. At that time, Jesus said to his disciples, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will stand by the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say to you, do not be anxious for your life, what you shall eat, nor yet for your body, what you shall put on. Is not the life a greater thing than the food, and the body than the clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are not you of much more value than they? But which of you, by being anxious about it, can add to his stature a single cubit? And as for clothing, why are you anxious? Consider how the lilies of the field grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory was arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which flourishes today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what are we to put on? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your Father knows that you need all these things. Seek first the kingdom of God and his justice, and all these things shall be given you besides. Please be seated. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. Dear Reverend Father, dear faithful, back in 1885, Pope Leo XIII wrote an encyclical entitled Immortality Day. And in this encyclical, he wrote the following words. It cannot be difficult to find out which is the true religion, if only it be sought with an earnest and unbiased mind, for proofs are abundant and striking. We have, for example, the fulfillment of prophecies, miracles in great numbers, the rapid spread of the faith in the midst of enemies and in the face of overwhelming obstacles, the witness of the martyrs, and the like. From all these, it is evident that the only true religion is the one established by Jesus Christ himself and which he committed to his church to protect and to propagate. It was a very bold claim by Pope Leo XIII that it's, in fact, easy to find the true religion if you're only looking for it. Today, my dear faithful, I just want to provide you a couple of examples, some really striking examples 
of things that show us that we have the true faith, things to give us certain confidence in the certainty of our faith, hopefully bolster our faith, and things that are specific to our age that, that are only have become known in the past 50 years. The first thing that, that example that I want to give concerns the conquest of Mexico. The conquest itself was miraculous, and I'm going to talk about that first. It was back in the 1500s that this happened, and the Aztec civilization had been there in Mexico for a long time, and they, they had a certain calendar, as all of these uh, Mesoamerican uh, civilizations did, and their calendar was predicting that in 1531, they would enter into a new era. And the Spaniards landed on the coast of Mexico in 1519, and Hernando Cortes, who was commanding the, the Spaniards, he only had about 500 soldiers, and he really didn't know what, what he was going to encounter. But these Spaniards, yes, they, they desired to become rich uh, by, by coming to the shores, but they also were very aware that they had a mission from Christ. They, they wanted to convert people to the faith of Christ, believing that they had the one true faith. So Cortes, with these 500 soldiers, he quickly saw that he had a vast civilization before him that he had stumbled upon. The, the Aztec civilization numbered hundreds of thousands of people, and the center of the Mexican civilization in, in what is now today Mexico City had hundreds of thousands of, of soldiers. Um, and these, the, 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 the Aztecs were, were sort of subjugating the surrounding Indian people. The Spaniards, however, seemingly in an in a, in a insane state of mind, they were kind of crazily, crazily bold, insanely bold, uh, in spite of the fact that they just had 500 soldiers, they desired to conquer these Aztec people for Christ. And Cortes had some men who wanted to go back to Cuba. They had, they had sailed from Cuba. And in order to prevent them from, from doing that, he decided to burn his ships. So they just burned all their ships to make it impossible for any of his soldiers to, to go back to Cuba or to Spain. And they marched towards the center of the country, and then found Mexico City was, was a huge city uh, at the time as it is today. And they actually went into the city and even imprisoned the king when they were just 500 soldiers. And anybody looking at this story would, would say to himself, what in the world were they thinking? How could they possibly do such a thing and think that they were going to succeed when they are up against such odds, some, sometimes the battles they would, they would fight were, were the odds of 100 to 1 or 100 soldiers to their one Spanish soldier. And there was one of the soldiers of Cortes, Bernal Diaz, who survived the conquest and lived to old age uh, back in Spain. And he, he reflected um, in, in when he's writing the story about those times and when they were in Mexico City and they had, they had basically imprisoned Montezuma, the the leader of, of the Aztecs. And he says the following, those readers who are interested by this history must wonder at the great deeds we did in those days, first in destroying our ships, then in daring to enter that strong city, despite many warnings that they would kill us once they had us inside. 
then in having the temerity to seize the great Montezuma, king of that country, in his own city and inside his very palace, and to throw him in chains. Now that I am old, I often pause to consider the heroic actions of that time. I seem to see them present before my eyes, and I believe that we perform them not of our own volition, but by the guidance of God. For what soldiers in the world, numbering only 400, and we were even fewer, would have dared to enter a city as strong as Mexico, which is larger than Venice and more than 4,500 miles away from our own Castile? And of course, you know what the result was, that, that somehow this incredible thing happened, that, that, that the Spaniards conquered the, the Mexican people. And by doing so, they ceased the practice of human sacrifice that was taking place there on a huge scale. The, 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 the paganism that, that was um, basically a certain homage being paid to Satan himself, to, to, to these, these false gods who were requiring thousands upon thousands of, of children and, and grown men and women to be sacrificed on their idolatrous altars. So the conquest happened on August the 13th, 1521. But while the people were conquered and, and the paganism was, was over, at least officially, of course, that did not mean that, that the hearts of the people were turned towards the Catholic faith. Uh, they were subjected in body, but, but not in soul. And so the, something else had to happen for them to want to become Catholics. What was needed was for the mother of God herself to come down from heaven and show these Mesoamerican Indians that they should embrace the Catholic faith. This is, in fact, what, what God himself decided to do. God himself decided to send his mother to these people to try to convince them to embrace the same faith that we have, the Catholic faith. And so Our Lady came down from heaven, and she appeared. She waited until 1531 because that was that significant year when, when the Aztecs were looking for some sort of new era to be ushered in for them. She came as one of them, as a Aztec maiden. She came as, as both a virgin and a mother. It was the custom of, among the Aztecs that if uh, a young girl was, was a maiden, she was a virgin, she would hair, wear her hair straight down. And this is, this is how Our Lady wore her hair when she came down. And if she was expecting, she would wear a belt uh, around her waist. And this is what is... Our Lady was wearing. She was wearing a belt to, to indicate that she was pregnant, and at the same time, she was a virgin. She was a virgin mother. She wore a cloak that, that would easily be identified by the Aztec Indians as belonging to an empress. It had a turquoise color that could only be worn by the emperor and the empress. And of course, this cloak was also covered with stars. And it wasn't until recently that, that we've been able to use our computer programs to figure out what the position of the stars were on the day that Our Lady appeared. It was December the 12th, 1531. And it was in the morning. And of course, when it's daylight outside, you can't see the stars. But the stars are still there. They're just sort of blown away by, by the sun. 
So we use these computer programs to simulate the rotation of the stars. The stars always move in the same way for, for centuries upon centuries. And so when they went back and they saw the configuration of the stars on the morning of December 12th, 1531, they discovered that it matched the configuration of the stars on Our Lady's cloak. With this major difference, however, that it wasn't the stars as if you're looking from Earth to heaven, rather the stars as if you're looking from heaven to Earth. As if Our Lady wanted to show the Indians that she came from heaven and came clothed with the stars. So on the right side of Our Lady's cloak are the stars of the southern hemisphere, the southern side of the, of the, uh, of the, the sky, the southern constellations. And on the, on the left side, if you're facing the image, you have the stars of the northern constellation. There were other things that could be picked up by the Indians. Um, the fact that she came on the day of the winter solstice, which was the shortest day of the year, but also the day when the, the, the light started to grow. And as I say, it was symbolic to them that it was the beginning of a new era. But I especially want to point out um, the things that, that we have only been able to discover about this image in our own time, when we have the technology to examine the image um, very technically and very scientifically. There are some incredible things that have just been revealed in the past 50 years. The, the position of the stars is one of them. Also, to a certain degree, what symbols were there that would have been picked up by the Aztec Indians. But you may know that the image is um, not produced by uh, someone painting the image on the fiber. Um, there, is, there is a layer of paint, but no one knows what substance this paint is. They, 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 they try to match it with all the su known substances on this earth, and they can't find what substance it is. And there's, there's somehow something incorruptible about this image on, on this cloak that was worn by Juan Diego. The paints, whatever substance it is, it has not faded in 500 years. The, the colors are exactly the same as, the, as those colors that are described by the first people who saw the image. So they described the, the colors 500 years ago. We look at the colors now, and they're, like, they're exactly the same. Moreover, the, the images produced on this tilma, which is uh, uh, made of the agave plant. And normally speaking, any cloak made of this plant would, would rot in 10 years. It would, it would fall apart. That's the normal lifespan for the, this plant. But as I say, there's, there's something almost incorruptible about this because it, it, is, it is Our Lady. She herself is incorruptible. The image was exposed for 120 years and did not decay. After that, they put it under glass, and in the remaining 380 years, it has not decayed. And it, when, when they examine it, they see no signs, no, no detected signs of, of any corruption of the fibers after all of this time. No one would ever have, have painted a, a picture on, on such a canvas. Um, for one thing, it has, it has seams. The, the cloths are, are put together. And somehow Our Lady is, is inclining her head to miss the seam that runs right down the cloak. And, and the artist uses the, the un, uneven surface of, of, the, of the seams 
in order to accentuate certain characters. So, so our lady's lip is, is like three-dimensional because there's a little bump in the tilma at that point, and that's why reproductions of the image, such as the one we have in our church here, they can't perfectly uh, represent the face. There's always going to be some difference from the original because it's put on a rough cloak. So this, this incredible image, also there's, there's one last thing that, that I have to mention and perhaps you've heard about, and that, that is the eyes of the image. Again, something that was not known for 400 years, but uh, an ophthalmologist put, put one of his scopes and shined a light into the eyes, and the eyes reflected light back. And then they did a deep analysis. They, they magnified the eyes, and they found that the eyes were like our human eyes, that when we're looking at something, our eyes are actually reflecting what we're looking at. There's a reflection of what we're looking at while we're looking at it. And in the eyes of, of Our Lady, there are 13 figures, the, the, the figures of those whom she was looking at when she appeared on that day. And it, it's actually, she's kind of standing behind Juan Diego, looking at Juan Diego, and she's looking at all the people who are in the room. So this incredible image was clearly miraculously produced by God for the purpose of leading the uh, Mexican Indians to our Catholic faith. What religion in the world do you know of where God works miracles to convert people to that faith? What religion in the world do you know of that honors so highly the mother of God? And we, we have this image that is clearly miraculous, was produced to, to convince people of the truth of the faith that we hold to. And God put in it certain secrets that he knew would not be known until our own time, in which you get to know for the strengthening of your faith. The other thing I want to speak about is, is the Shroud of Turin, another very extraordinary, uh, miraculous cloth. The Shroud of Turin has been studied by scientists more than any other object in this world. It has been studied for over 600,000 man-hours. Over 2,000 scientists have investigated it in the past 30 years, and 95% of those scientists who investigated it have become Christians when they started off as agnostics or atheists. Why did the study of the Shroud convince them of the truth of, of our Lord? because of the fact that the shroud gives such powerful evidence that it is the only artifact we know of that shows a physical resurrection of someone. When the scientists have analyzed the shroud, what they found is, is that the, Im the image on the shroud is not painted on the shroud. There are no paints on the shroud. Rather, the image is burned on the shroud. There is an oxidation of the linen fibrils on the shroud. So the oxidation took place on the first six microns of the shroud. A human hair is between 50 and 70 microns, the width of a human hair. And so six microns is one-tenth of the width of a human hair. And there was this 
oxidation of the linen fibrils. And scientists have tried to say, can we reproduce this? How, how can we make this happen? And there was some scientists in Italy who took like a, a tiny piece of cloth, like the size of a postage stamp, and were able to kind of reproduce that, that same oxidation on that cloth that exists on the shroud. And what they did was they directed short, high-energy pulses of ultraviolet light on the cloth. They reproduced a similar effect, and they said, okay, if you had a, a, a cloth the, the same size as the shroud, what would you have to do to produce this image that is on the shroud? And they came to the conclusion that to scale up that energy to a shroud-sized linen cloth would require pulse durations of less than 1 40 billionth of a second and intensities of the order of several billion watts. And this, this, my dear faithful, tells us what happened at our Lord's resurrection. This very rapid pulse of very intense energy that pervaded the cloth in which our Lord's body was wrapped. And it's important for us to note that not every part of the cloth was touching our Lord's body. There were some parts that had contact with our Lord's body, some that did not. But the whole shroud has this image of our Lord's entire body from this burst of incredible <clears throat> intensity at the moment of our Lord's resurrection. Because the image was produced in this way, you see different things under UV light. When they examine it under ultraviolet light, they, they see that the image is like an, almost like an x-ray. They can see through the hands of our Lord to the bones. And, and because he was, he was crucified in the wrist, his, his, his thumb came in, they can see his, hand, his thumb through his hand on the shroud. They can also see the blood flows. If you, if you just look at the image with the naked eye, you can't see the blood. But through the UV light, they can see the flowing of the blood from the wounds of our Lord. What, what we conclude from looking at the shroud is, is that it matches exactly the story of our Lord's passion, death, and resurrection as told in the Gospels. It's a living scientific testimony to the truth of what the Gospels say. And all of these things that I've been talking to you about were not known for 2,000 years. The Catholic Church preserved this relic for 2,000 years, not knowing all of its secrets. And it's only in our own godless times when we have this technological mastery that we have been able to reveal these incredible aspects of this cloth in order to give to our scientific age scientific proofs of his own resurrection and hopefully give to us confirmation of what we believe by faith. I wanted to, to speak to you of, of one, one other story, the, the finding of the bones of St. Peter in 1960 directly under the Vatican. But I don't have time for that. And of course, there's many, many other stories that, that um, are, are just incredibly miraculous stories that confirm the beliefs of our Catholic faith. These stories 
that, that I've told you today are, are so special because clearly God has reserved them for our time. Um, how good God is to, to place all these secrets in the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe and, and for people not to know them. And he, it's almost like he waits till, till our time to tell them to you. It's, it's kind of a privilege to live today, to be able to, to know these things. Um, to be able to see the goodness of God. How good is it of God to give us a replica of the incredible event of his own resurrection in the shroud for us to see what our Lord went through in his passion by, by examining the shroud, seeing how many strokes of the whip came on his back and on his legs, um, all the bleeding that, that took place of, of his precious blood, and then his incredible triumph at the moment of his resurrection. These secrets, my dear faithful, have been reserved for you. God kept them for you, to, for you to know them here in, in this 21st century which, where faith is so weak. So let us give thanks to God for, for this special blessing, to, for, for him to give us these, these special proofs of our faith, and let us strengthen ourselves in the faith as a result. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen.